Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today is my distinct honor to welcome Keeper Katrin Whitney onto the show, and he has a powerful story of family healing that he's going to share with us during this episode. I will uh, forewarn any listeners that we are probably going to touch in some, not probably, we will be touching in very sensitive material. If you have any trauma history of your own, especially around sexual abuse, this episode is for you with care and concern, and it may become very overwhelming for you at times. So please take care of yourself as you listen to this. You may need to listen to this one in small bites and doses, depending on where you're at in your journey. Uh, Keeper, I'm so honored to meet you and to hear about your story and your family's story of of moving from helplessness to hopefulness to happiness, so much so that you've even written books and included your family members on the journey. So, Keeper, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Really excited about this. Yes, thank you. Now, so for the listeners listening, Keeper and I are both on our journeys to do TEDx talks. And... I'm very excited. This is how I met him and heard his story. And I just was like, I've got to have him on the podcast. It's amazing. So Keeper, help us get into your story and, and what's brought you to the work that you're doing now in your life. Okay, great. I come from a rather large family, uh, four boys, four girls, my mother and stepfather. And we grew up impoverished. Uh, in fact, uh, before I graduated high school, I went to 11 grade schools. We moved so much. I lived in 21 different homes. Uh, we were homeless three times. So in the midst of all of that, uh, we we're trying to figure out how to make money. And one day my mom starts singing because she comes from a very uh, prominent uh, singing family out of Portland, Oregon. And as good as she was, she wasn't making enough money. So one day she heard us kids singing around the house. And so Obviously, back in 1970-71, we're all pretending to be Michael Jackson and Jackson Five. <laughs> of and course. Says, you know, if, right? Uh, you know, you're singing Who's Loving You, ABC, <laughs> and I Want You Back, all of the great yes. And so she says, would you guys like to sing? Because if we sing as a family, we can make more money. And so that's what we start doing. The next thing you know, we eight kids are singing in after-hour nightclubs on weekends all over Los Angeles. And then... One afternoon, we are rehearsing and the phone rings and my mother answers the phone and it's, hello, who is it? Say, say what? And she looks at us and says, Michael Jackson's on the phone. Yeah, <laughs> Wait, that, what? That MJ? The MJ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's on the phone and we're barely able to make a $90 a month rent. In fact, there were days when me and my older brother had to go into the street to look for bottles so we could turn in those bottles for the nickel uh, uh, redeemable that you would get or the dime yeah. and in order to try to, you know, uh, get a pound of ground beef or some rice. And next thing you know, he's on the phone and saying he's heard of us and you guys just keep going. And 
Jump cut to 1977. Six years later, everything we touched was gold. And in fact, Motown called us and asked if we would. We, they had chosen us to replace Michael Jackson in the Jackson 5, who they had lost to Epic Records three years earlier. So days before, we're about to sign this contract. My sister screams upstairs, Keeper, James, uh, Daryl, come downstairs, family meeting. And I'm thinking, cool, this is it. I'm about to become rich. I'm about to become famous. I'm leaving all this poverty behind. Sprint into the living room. My mother and stepfather enter. But their energy was wrong. <laughs> I feel the wall hitting and I me. Since something was wrong. Yeah, you know, my three, my four sisters are effervescent. They are bubbly. But when I walked into the room, they were sitting on the far end of the couch. They weren't saying a word and they never stopped talking. So this was odd. And so when my mom and stepfather, Willie, entered the room, Willie goes and sits in a brown recliner. He immediately, Ed, he just bends over and puts his hands over his face. Mm. And, you know, like, okay, is he sick? You know? Then my mother walks in the middle of the room and she's usually very bubbly. You know, we're yeah. all very upbeat. Yeah. But she wasn't saying a word. And she turned around and said the words no brother could ever prepare for. You know, ever wanted to hear, Willie has been molesting your sisters for years. Mm. And then she dropped another bomb. I have known about it the whole time. In, in that moment, you're whole family is just in shambles on the floor. You're spinning. You can't comprehend, particularly if you're a brother, because unfortunately for my sisters, they already knew the story because they were the story. Right. You know, yeah. they already knew. But as brothers, we had no time to process. And I, I don't mean to sound callous, Right. or uh, uncaring about my sisters, but they knew what was coming. We four boys were the only ones in the family who didn't know this conversation was coming. Blindsided. And we were hit. And yeah. And as we're going through this, my older sister then spun around and pointed to her boys and said, you can't talk about it. It didn't talk. It didn't happen to you. You can't talk about it ever. And then boom. The people we needed to speak to and get hopefully answers and help us understand just told us we can't talk to them. And so as a brother, we had nowhere to go. We were lost. We were confused. Uh, hmm. It was the beginning of a 45 year journey for me of trying to find self-esteem, recapture who I am as a brother, because along the way, uh, you know, you're as you're trying to understand and being told you can't talk about it, you make mistakes. You know, right? Uh, two weeks after all that happened, after my mom put my stepdad out, she brought him back into the family, brought him back into the house, and so we're dealing with this because she is saying, "I will handle it," but her handling it took nine years. Nine years. And so as a brother, you're trying to figure all that out. And the hard part is you're told you can't talk to the people you need to talk to. Your mother says she'll handle it. You're still trying to get out of a life of abject poverty. And so uh, 
you know, as I mentioned in my book, I am very, very vulnerable in my upcoming book, Helplessness. I cut no one any slack, especially me. And so uh, I looked at the nine years as my mom handling it. As I told my sister in our podcast, when we finally talked about it 45 years later, it was it was like a warm blanket. It meant I didn't have to do anything. And yet you're not having relationships with your sisters that you should have. And when you want to talk to them, they're like, stop, don't want to talk about it. And so uh, nine years later in 1986, I'm going to get married in November. I had one thought on my mind three weeks leading up to the wedding as he could not be around my sister. So I've got to get him out of the house. And so um, to, to, to shorten this, I gave my stepfather 24 hours to leave the house because he could not be around my sisters if I was not there. Certainly that could not happen. And we met at the top of the stairs and gave him 24 hours. And my stepfather is 6'6", 240 pounds. And he wore this huge Afro wig that put his height over seven feet tall. And I'm 5'8", 5'9", 945 pounds, knowing I'm going to die or he will be dead the next day. One of the two of us. But I was okay because it was weird. I never... And it never occurred to me that if I died or if I murdered him, I was going to be dead one way or the other. I was either going to be dead because he killed me or I was going to be dead because I committed premeditated murder. And it never occurred to me that that was going to be more traumatizing for my sisters and brothers than just about anything my stepfather could do, because they would have shouldered the blame. They would have said, I don't need to talk about it. I shouldn't have said anything. And it. You know, it's, uh, it was such a dark, it, it, challenging it being a brother is being a brother of sisters, finding out that your stepfather had been sexually abusing them for a long period of time. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he started with my oldest sister when she was 11. I'm, I'm number two of eight. It's my older brother. Then it's me. Then it's our first sister and he started on her when she was 11 and he shortly started on my three youngest when they were six and five and this went on oh i don't know uh eight nine years and i understand to a degree what my sisters have gone through because me and my older brother we were sexually abused by our babysitter almost daily for six months, six mm. years earlier. Uh. So I like to say I understand the damaged side and I understand the collateral damage side. You know, it's unique. Right. And yet it, it is what it is. I, it's such a challenging thing. And I, I sense the vulnerability in, in that space of having walked through my own sexual abuse, childhood trauma history and disclosing to family and hearing other people in my counseling practice, it's, it is this just really, I don't know, tenuous is the word that comes from my mind. It's so hard to, to honor the other person's experience and say, I can understand. And sometimes it's not exactly the same, but it's gotta be close enough. And, you know, I think for me, what I've come to understand, I'm curious to hear your thoughts is, while we may not have had the exact same experience, we likely felt the same feelings. Right, the mm -hmm. the sense mm -hmm. of shame and rage and anger and um, 
absolute numbness and terror, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, there, the- there is guilt. Even if it's just your own, you, you have all those feelings that you just described. But when it becomes your sister or a sibling, I found it to be more magnified my emotions because I felt that I failed them from the very beginning, even though I knew nothing about it. And so, um, you know, uh, there's all the shame and the guilt and the betrayal. And uh, there's one aspect of this where my stepfather did it to them. But in some respects, my mother was worse because she knew and she didn't stop it. In fact, she knew about me and my older brother and she didn't stop it then either. Mm. She... I don't, what's what's the word complicit feels like the word that's coming up she was somehow complicit or guilty yeah. by association in it oh yeah 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 you know i like to look at it as as a spider web my stepfather was in the center he was in the web and he's feeding on everyone who knows and does nothing and the web just grows and grows and grows Everyone who we told that we needed help, everyone who was aware did nothing. That web just got bigger and bigger. And you are not aware that you are being fed upon by a predator simply because you've done nothing. And, um, you know, we were kids. So the innocence of kids is such a tragic part of all of this is as kids, we don't have so many of the adult psychological abilities that grow and develop over time. And, and so we, uh, kids personalize things way more than they need. It's hard to keep things in perspective for kids. Yeah. We can't compartmentalize like adults typically can. Yeah. That's definitely a big part of it. So, so this gets, I mean, this is unfolded for you 45 years. There's something powerful in hearing that because, um, the journey of recovering from trauma, as far as I can tell, really is a lifetime's journey. What it means, what it takes on, how it evolves, moves and shapes year to year and decade by decade. I mean, I'm, I can't say that I'm in multiple decades into my healing journey yet, but I'm years into it. And it's really different than when it first kind of came on. I was functioning kind of as a everyday normal and then fell into major depression and started asking questions about, well, what's going on with me and ended up in that very mm-hmm. dark place of trauma. So as you, tell me about like, where were the resource, what kind of resources were you able to tap? I mean, you, I think you've said like, um, before this interview, you've partly been on this journey because when you went looking for research resources on how to support yourself and how to support your sisters through the recovery, there was nothing. Is that true? Yeah. Like, there's uh, my my journey for resources was about me as a brother uh, because there are tons of resources for women and girls on the internet. There have always been re- resources. There are no documentaries. There are no magazines. There are no interviews that involve brothers. There are no mini series. There's nothing like that that highlights our stories. And yet, my initial uh, foray into trying to find uh, support only took me to the only place that was available to me at that time. And that was libraries and bookstores. There was no Google. Right. There were no search engines. <laughs> right. And I'd go into the library and there'd be ton of books that were resources for women 
than girls. But there was absolutely nothing that not only spoke to uh, I, to the trauma of men, but it was as if the brothers' conversation didn't even exist. We were irrelevant. So there was nothing there. And as a brother trying to cope with what you've just heard and then being told you can't talk about it because my brothers and I, we didn't even talk to each other about mm, it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so uh, you're just lost. And so what I decided to do is uh, 2013, I said, you know, I need to write a book about this, what the brother's experience is. Yeah. Uh, because there are so I've come to learn there are so many brothers out there uh, who are carrying this burden. In fact, in 2013, which really kind of kicked this off, I had gone to a conference in San Diego on how to write a book uh-huh. in 20 minutes. And it's all about the chapter headings and all of that and then yeah. filling in the blanks later. But when I went to the event, my initial book idea had nothing to do with my trauma. But as I sat there over the weekend, I was just being pulled. I was being dragged into, you have got to tell this story. So before I went to San Diego, I went to one of my sisters and I told her, I said, I'm having this pull to write this book about the brother's experience. And I don't want to uh, dishonor you four girls. And she said, you absolutely should write a book. It's your story. All you boys have a story. It's not my story. It's not a girl's story, but you should tell a story from a brother's perspective. So I, from her telling me that when I got to the conference, this emotion to write this book became bigger and bigger. And I was called on to tell my story of what my book was going to be. And I got up to the front of the stage and what poured out was Hmm. this. And then when I went and sat down at at the table, I was swamped by women. Wow. Saying it was their brothers could have heard my story. Hmm. It was too much for me to handle. And I got up and left the room, left the hall as quickly as possible. And then the double doors just opened up and I was swamped by even more women. Saying I should have told my brother, he should have under, I should have given opportunity. But there were three women that told me their brothers committed suicide because Mm. they could not, not only protect them, but they felt guilt and shame. And I identified with that because that was me in 1986, taking on my father-in-law, knowing I was going to kill him or I was going to be, be on death row for premeditated murder. And I was so good with it. So I understood what those brothers were talking about and what they experienced. That depth of pain and the intolerability of not being able to, um, I'm doing air quotes, protect your sister. Um, And yet there's Mm -hmm. such a sense, I don't have sisters, but my sense is that brothers feel a sense of responsibility in here and cultural narrative and story that you're supposed to protect your sisters even more than your brothers. Like there's a, this added layer of responsibility. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. I've heard a quote that I like the definition of what it means to be a brother is to protect the honor of your sisters. Mm. And obviously that, because I have sisters just lands on me with, with such realism. Uh, 
Yeah. And so that being the definition, um, right. which I accept in many ways as being true, uh, I'm constantly reminded of where I failed. But as I told my sisters, uh, I think we were brought together as a family and I go on a spiritual view of this now. Yeah, sure. We were brought together as a family to go through this tragedy so we could help others by telling our story and some of the things you might want to look for. So I like to say uh, our tragedy does not need to end in trauma. It can be used to help and heal others. And that's how I go with this. That's such a powerful place to get to, isn't it? And it, my understanding, and this is kind of comes uh, both personal, professional, and uh, academic, if you will, is those are those la latter stages of healing from trauma, mm. right? Like you can't, yeah. that's, that's not the beginning place for most of us as travel exactly. unfolds for us. But it's as we get along the healing journey, we start to see the meaning and the purpose behind the, what happened with the trauma differently. Um, right. But we have to go through all these other stages, if you will, before we can get there and, and allow the trauma to be mission driven. And that, I think that's part of why right. I connect it with you is, you know, it talking with you draws me on my own journey of uh, making meaning of my own trauma and pain and my own family history. And, you know, the stories that I still don't probably fully know in my family's broader history, right? Because yeah. the, the thing that I've come to appreciate, Keeper, is... Um, the secrecy within families around trauma is just so profound. Whether whether it's the sexual abuse that's happening, whether it's emotional abuse or physical abuse or drug addiction or or any other thing that's eaten away at the core of the family often gets covered over and hidden away as best as possible. Yeah. And that's part of what makes it so hard. And yet why the work you're doing is so important is to kind of pierce the veil and get it opened up so that people can get healing and help and know they're not alone in that experience or journey. Yeah. And in the conversation of child sexual abuse, there is no space for brothers to talk about our trauma. And so we carry this hidden uh, trauma. I, I will share a story with you. As I was writing my manuscript, my father-in-law, who was white and Jewish, uh, he passed away three years ago. I, mm. my, my father, my biological father died of a heroin cocaine overdose. My stepfather, who did all the sexual abuse, we don't need to go through his work. We already know enough about him. But sure. my stepfather is white and Jewish. We just had a very special relationship. It's the kind of relationship a father and a son should have. And mm. he had no sons. So he never said anything about my manuscript. He, he knew a, a little bit about what I went through. And we come from our backgrounds are vastly <laughs> different. Yeah. And so he called me after reading it. Rather, he asked if he could read it. And I said, well, sure, Dad. Yeah, uh, I don't have any problem with it, you know. Uh -huh. And about four days after reading it, he calls me and he says, can you come by the house? I want to talk to you. Thinking, okay, sure, Dad. I'm no problem. I'll be there. When do you want me there? So, next day I go over and I notice Mom is not there. She's not at the house now. Mm. My mother-in-law and father-in-law are with each other all the time, <laughs> but at this moment she's not home. 
I walk in the house. He's sitting at the dining room table and I have a seat. And I said, hi, dad. Um, what did you want to talk about? He immediately said, what I'm about to tell you, you can't tell anyone until after I die. Mm. Oh, okay. So I'm immediately put on alert. This is very important. Yeah, big time. He says, you cannot tell. My daughter said, you can't even tell your wife until after I pass away. Okay. He then proceeds to tell me of an 80-year burden, 80 years, eight decades, when he saw that his sister was being sexually abused by the adult neighbor upstairs in their apartment complex when he was a teenager. And he says it happened twice. This is my father-in-law. He's 96 years old when he's telling me this. And he says, I understand. And he's starting to cry. Yeah, I understand what sure. you're going through. I understand the burden. So, Ed, <laughs> it's really interesting because my father-in-law is from Brooklyn. I'm from L.A. He's Jewish. I grew up Baptist. He's white. I'm black. We are <laughs> economically speaking, right? Completely different. He's on this side of the tracks. I'm on this side of the tracks. Our education is different. Our backgrounds are different in every way imaginable, except on this particular topic. We are brothers. We are tight. He's sitting down with his black son-in-law mm. and saying, "This is the person I could finally." tell yeah. this story to. So it told me in that mm. moment, it crossed religion, it crossed race, it crossed age, it crossed Class. politics, it crossed wealth lines, it crossed all of that because a brother carrying this type of burden, we understand that we don't say anything. And so I, I like this needs to be a voice when all other groups have stopped talking and they take that momentary exhale, brothers must step into the gap and find a way to raise our voices. And in that way, we can become allies with our sisters as opposed to what we usually are, which are enemies. Because through gender proximity, I have learned brothers could be viewed as more of a villain than the actual predator himself because uh, <sighs> we're expected to answer for something we, we knew absolutely nothing about. And, you know, I get it. You know, sisters, yeah. historically women, there is absolutely no comparison. To be a woman in this world today, it is so hard is not even the word. And our guys, we go through our things, but to be a woman in this world, it's scary. It is absolutely scary, and I've seen it firsthand. And, and yet, I also know the, the trauma that a brother experience so that's why i'm telling this and i'm this is my mission but it, it is such a valuable mission and i think about you know i was next to tears as you were sharing that and the story of your father-in-law is just so beautiful crossing all these lines and and I, yet i couldn't help think about my brother when i called him and i said hey i need to tell you this and i don't i don't really know like i was still on the stage of disbelief that this was actually true or not but you know it's Hey, this is what came up in my therapy, and this is what I think happened. And and I I know I need to call him tonight, you know, with this call and just touch base with him and just acknowledge like 
so because this is right like we're talking about on multiple fronts of of the experience of sexual abuse we're talking about for you specifically as a brother knowing your sister experienced it but also as men having experienced our own forms of sexual abuse and the sources of that just compounds the complexity of this and that's another big part of the unspoken voice around sexual abuse is the male experience of sexual abuse is not probably statistically as significant as women but it's still a lot higher than most people realize but there's no voice to that right you know i had a a doctor a female doctor who was doing some work on the editing this and she said to me you know i'm a woman and reading this you know she's also a professor at uh arizona state and she said this what you have presented to me as one of the most powerful things I had has ever come across my desk ever. I have never heard of anything like this. And what I am forced to understand is as a woman, we have to be very careful with innocent men here because we don't want to weaponize our language to the point that it shuts down those men who can be allies. And and she, what what made her come to that conclusion, certainly from my book, is what my sister did. Oh. She pointed, even though I understood years later why my sister did it, she had to do it in order to not only protect her, but protect my three little sisters. And yet the, uh, um, the doctor said that was a weaponization of language. And I told her, I said, this is true. But what other recourse do women and girls have? And she said, I. Yeah, so that's where we need to create these allyships. So what is that journey of starting to create the allyships? What what are these lessons about how families start, I don't know, the word reconciliation process, start to open up the shutdown conversations? Well, for me, before I even got to that point, I had to do some work on me. And it took me a long time. First of all, it took me a long time to realize I was even sexually abused by our babysitter. I did not understand that until, and I kid you not, seven years ago. Okay. I'm 64 years old and I did not understand that what was happening to me until I was getting toward near the end of writing helplessness. And I thought, wait a minute. Was I sexually abused? I'm at 57 and I still did not recognize that's what was happening. So I went to Google and said, yes, that's exactly what took place. And it was like, oh, I'm a victim and an indirect victim. So one night my wife and I are in bed and she says, you and I'm telling her, I want to talk to my sister still. They still won't let me do it. And she says to me, she turns and says, you know, you're a victim. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm just telling you what what I want to do. I want to talk to them. And she looks at me and says, how can you not see you're a victim? Look at you. You're a mess. You're shaking. You're sweating. Just talking about wanting to talk to them. And it wasn't until that moment, Ed, that it landed on me that, damn, I'm a victim. So to your question, the first thing before you can even get to your sisters is as a brother, as men, we need to recognize and accept the fact that we are victims because without that acceptance healing not only can it not begin it won't even be successful i then Mm -hmm. went to okay dna 
it, this is now part of my DNA and like DNA, which is self replicating. The trauma yeah. is self replicating. If I don't recognize it and it rep- self replicates in other parts of our life, oftentimes in ways we don't recognize or even understand. Right. Yeah. And then once we do that work and I had to do my work on my own. Mm. And let me just digress here for a second. Sure. I went to three female therapists seven years ago and said, I need help. Can you help me? And each one told me no, because I don't know how to help a man who is dealing with sexual mm. abuse and certainly don't know how to help a brother. And yeah. I said, well, wait a minute. Isn't your area of expertise, <laughs> trauma, healing, people in sexual abuse? She said, yes. But you're, but you're a man. The second one says, but you're a man. The third one says, but you're a man. And I'm like, oh, I'm in pain here. And so I asked him, I said, if, Uh, if my entire family was lost in a car crash, could you help me with that trauma? And they said, yes, each one. I said, okay, I have lost my family. Can you help me? And they all still said, no, because you're a man. There has still been nowhere for me to go. So I've had to do my work on my own. Oh, and so that God. gets back to the main thing that we have to do is bid before we can even talk to our sisters is find at least one person that you can talk to. And this goes back to my father-in-law who carried his burden for 80 years and he still wanted to unburden himself. He comes to me because he knows I have written this only book on this subject. Yeah, And so you know, you. this is the kind of healing work that you do. You know, you've got to find someone you can talk to. And then after that, I can talk about getting to my sisters. Well, it just, it doesn't, it baffles me. It doesn't baffle me because my understanding of the healing journey and trauma, and this is a, a way simple down version. It's, it's more than this. Sure. But it's showing up with empathy and compassion and curiosity for the person's story mm-hmm. and being able to bear witness to them sharing their story and their experience of it. You don't have to be an expert. Like you have to be an expert in being able to bear witness and stay present, to not check out, to not yes. judge, to not be critical, yes. to not be uh, voyeuristic about it. But to allow, hold space for someone to let the story unfold as it was for them and as they recall it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not about getting perfect timed details down to the minute and and all that. It's about what was left in your body, the feeling that was left in your body. And, yeah, I'm just wiggling my body even just because I just feel that, like, as I talk about it, my body wants to collapse down, right, which is that part of that trauma response. Exactly. That's part of your your trauma response. You understand it, you know, you get it. And so it is, it is just one of those things that, like I said, you're trying to hold on to a space in which you can cope. Yeah. Otherwise, we will spiral down into an abyss and there's no rope that's going to help us pull ourselves up out of this abyss. Oh, it God. can get even uglier. And I have experienced uglier with this. Would you be willing to share what what is some of that ugly that you've experienced from this? Well, number one, I've already mentioned, I almost committed murder. Yeah, behind all this, <laughs> huge. As I'm writing my as I'm writing my book, I got to a section because after I put 
this, my stepfather out of the house, I thought it was done. Right. But I'm interviewing my sisters later, and one begins to tell me the story of how he got to her and raped her and got her pregnant. Mm-hmm. And as I'm writing this section, I'm thinking, okay, I've, I've, I've saved the first two. I don't have to worry about the youngest. I don't have to worry about the twins. Yeah. And I'm writing this, and then I come to a stop. And I'm in my office, and it's like it was bright and sunny, and all of a sudden these thunderclouds just start swirling overhead. Oh, yeah. And I'm frozen looking at the page, and I just kind of push back. And I say, I thought I saved them. Mm. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. So, Keeper, you've been telling us this incredible story of your family life and your journey of reconciliation and stress with the disclosure of sexual abuse with your sisters and what that's meant for you, what that's meant for them. Where are we at in the story? Where are we going? What's, I mean, you've got these three books out here. You've been married for 40-plus years. You're working on your relationship with your sisters. Where, where do we need to go in the story now? Well, just, just for some clarification, so far, uh, book one has been written, Helplessness. And I must tell you, uh, book one is very dark, uh, and it's meant to be that way. It's very gritty. It's very ugly. It gets deep into the minutiae of what it feels like to go through as a brother. And my sisters who also, three of my sisters who also contribute, also bring their flavor to it, which is amazing. Because when I talked to them about it, I told them, look, you say what you need to say. Don't even be concerned about what I have to think. We need to deliver this unvarnished as best as possible because And I think what happens for many books and many people when they talk about their pain and trauma, we're all, it's, it's kind of like we are protecting the viewer or the listener as it is in this case. And we're also trying to protect ourselves. And my, and my view is it's ugly what we went through. It is so horrible. I take you deep into the abyss and. As one guy who read it told me, uh, he said, you don't give us room to breathe in this book. This book is almost, it's it's rather lengthy. It's over 700 pages and it goes through everything. The other two obviously won't be that long. And he says, you know, you don't let us come up for air. And I said, there is a reason for that. My sisters did not get a chance to come up for air. They were constantly under attack as a brother we are constantly under attack. And for people to understand what the darkness really is, I need to take them there and bring them up for a little bit of a breather. Then we need to go back down into it. And so 
Now, that's the reason why helplessness is as dark and as ugly as it is, because that is the reality of the situation. So helplessness is now wow. in the uh, publishing. Yeah, you, you go right ahead. I just want to, I mean, commend you because I, the word that came to my mind as you started to share this is we whitewash our stories, right? We, yeah. we clean them up, we sanitize them. And even when we're telling stories of profound trauma and suffering and loss, so much of the, the nuanced, gritty detail and the experiences and what's happening in our minds and in our bodies and, and souls gets kind of left to the side. And, and I really appreciate you naming to some degree, kind of trying to protect the the consumer, the viewer, the listener, but also ourselves. And yet, if we're really to come to terms with it, we have to get to the very bottom and the core essence of what Absolutely. is actually lived you are and spot felt. on. We have to get to the core of the problem. And the core of the problem for me, it's fear. When I really take a step back, there is the trauma, there is the mental aspect, the mental health aspect of it, but so much of that it centers around fear. And unless we get to the heart of that, even as we're sharing our stories with other people, we go to bed and we think about and we dream about and we relive all of it. And we, and we, and for, for the longest time it was, why didn't I just tell people what, what it felt like? Yeah, well, and sometimes it's the language that having the language to even describe it is challenging. And, I, and I'm thinking about fear is almost not enough. But, yeah. you know, what I've come to appreciate is like the depth of, of emotional words and language betrays sometimes the full lived experience. And so, like, Ooh, I hear boy, fear and I think right. <laughs> terror, right? Like, this was not fearful. Like, I'm afraid of a snake. This is like terror. I'm going to die in in this experience, yeah. overwhelming terror, crippling, and that's a crippling fear, right? Like there's, we almost have to add some words to get yeah. to the, just how profound this experience is. Well, I'll tell you two little quick stories that my sisters told me as I was writing it. I described what happened to my sisters. We lived on 53rd and Figueroa in Los Angeles at the time. And my mother and father's bedroom where this all began was at the front of the house. Everyone else was at the back of the house upstairs. And because we were so poor, the only type of curtains we had was lawn and leaf bags. We just had to take them up for years. That's all we had. And after a while, they dry out and they split and you could see the sun just kind of break through. Well, when my stepfather would bring my sisters into that room, he would sit them on the bed and I'm writing this imagining all of this taking place to them. And I see the light coming in. I see the dust just floating past the slits. And I see my stepfather, six foot six, standing above them. And he's silhouetted because the light is behind them. And I just imagine him unbuckling his pants and the pants just drop down really soft. And they hit the floor. And all they see for the first time is something they should never be seeing at that age. And when I told my sister uh, about it, I said, this is what I imagined. And she said, you are absolutely correct. How you imagined it is exactly what it was like. And hearing her confirm what I was imagining as a brother happening to her was overwhelming. Another sister told me he would take me into the closet 
close the door. And how you wrote it, how you described it is exactly how it happened. And so I'm a brother and I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to write this and I'm going to be honest and not only honor other brothers, but honor women and girls as well, I have to tell it how it is or how a brother imagines it happening to his sisters. And it is a devastating view. And I have these moments today when I'm driving down the street and there's one song that gets me. It's Gladys Knight and the Pips, Midnight Train to Georgia. They take me back to a, you know, to a time of, you know, it was just, things were just good. And I hear that song and I'm an absolute mess. Because taking me back, yeah, it, it just transports me back to when things were simpler for us. But for my sisters, it was never simple. And as a brother, I grapple with this every day. It take, the music takes you back to a time of your own innocence. Yeah. And at the same time, this realization that your sisters didn't share in that innocence. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, when your sisters read that you could imagine yourself into their lived experience, what was that like for them to experience it? He gets us. He yeah. gets what's happened. Yeah. They were shocked that I was able to describe it in such vivid detail after just imagining what it was like, because I, I knew the room intimately. We lived there for a while, so I could see it all playing yeah. out. And they they were shocked that I was able to just bring such vividness to it. And their their response when I wrote it was, you need to keep it just as is, because people need to know this is what we girls went through. Um, I had a woman who was one of my beta readers and she read it and she said, for the first time after reading this, as horrible as all this is, you are the first man who gets it. And I was stunned. She said, not even my husband gets it when I tell him. And then she finished up by saying, you're on the team. I'm saying, what team are you talking about? She says, you're on the women's (laughs) team because you get it. And uh, it was like, oh. okay, uh, what do you do with that? You just, for me, I just have to keep going. So uh, the other two books are coming, but this one is very ugly. So, so this, there's, maybe it's too easy and premature to say this, but there's a beauty in this ugliness that I'm hearing. And it's mm-hmm. your willingness to, the word that's coming to my mind is, empathy deepest form of empathy right is being able to fully step into and imagine what somebody else's lived experience has been like what they saw what they felt what what was the environment like what was happening because that to me when i when i receive that experience that type of deep empathy when someone tries to really imagine what my experience has been like it it almost unburns the pain of that experience yeah yeah Right. It doesn't it doesn't undo it. It doesn't mean I've forgotten it, but it's like, oh, thank, I can breathe like, oh, thank, thank God. Like, I'm not just making this up because sometimes it can feel like when we have these traumas, like, man, maybe I'm just making this up. I mean, I know it's real. I, I know it happened to me, but it's like I can't share it in any way that someone seems to get yeah. it. Well, you sound like me uh, when I shared a story earlier about my wife saying, you know, you're a victim. And I'm just saying, no, I'm not. And we're going back to when I was 
uh, sexually molested by our babysitter, me and my older brother almost daily for six months, six years before my sisters. Our babysitter would bring us in because she lived with us during the, during the week. She would bring us into her room, lie on the bed, tell us to go to her dresser and get a bag of cotton swabs and alcohol and give her an alcohol bath. But while she's laying on the bed, she oh. becomes totally nude. And she starts masturbating yeah. in front of us. And here we are, six and seven years uh -huh. old. So that type of trauma of having to witness and be there and see all that, I understand, uh, uh, you know, at a certain level, what my sisters went through. And so uh, from an empathetic standpoint, yes, I, I get it. Because as a child, you're not supposed to go through that sort of thing. No, those are definite boundaries and places that you're not supposed to go through. I mean, there's such profound violations of the child's mind. And You mentioned something mm -hmm. a second ago about the importance of language in all of this. On my website, I have a 16-part podcast that I talk to many different people, including my son, and then another conversation with my wife, and then another conversation with my brother for the first time we talk about it, my older brother, and then one of my sisters, the twins, the three of us for the first time talk about it. That part of the podcast is like four is like two hours. But yeah. one of the things one of my sisters told me, which I didn't understand, I still don't get it. She said, unlike us girls, you boys chose to carry this burden. And this is where language is very, very critical with sharing it with each other and women sharing it with men and girls sharing it with their brothers. The language is important because what brother in his right mind would choose to carry this burden? No brother chooses to right. choose to carry this. Just like no girl no. would choose to carry the burden of knowing and her forgetting that I was molested years before she was molested. And so one of the people that yeah. I had on my podcast was a Dr. Yvonne Merrill out of uh, Arizona State. And she says, we as women need to be careful how we use language against innocent men with this, because just because of our gender proximity to the molester doesn't make us guilty. But it's different, difficult. I could see separating that for women. Yeah, I could see that quite easily. It makes sense just because of the historical nature of how men have treated women over uh, since since the beginning. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that to me is my best sense of of part of healing from trauma is is the word that comes to my mind is differentiation. Right, yes. it is part of what happens in our our mind when we experience trauma is we start to generalize to create bigger spaces of safety. And so if mm -hmm. one man perpetrated against me, it's safer to just lump all men yeah. into perpetrators instead of recognizing that there's degrees of safety within each individual, and that's true for men and women. Mm -hmm. um, right, A healthier mind can differentiate and sort through and sense who's dangerous, who's might be dangerous, who's safe, who's likely to be very safe, and that there is difference in these people. And it's, and I think it's also when we're, especially when we're so deep in our trauma, it's hard to imagine that other people have also felt, maybe not had the exact same trauma, but 
felt the same pain, terror, shame, mm-hmm. alienation beneath it all, right? Which is where the empathy can come from is you felt that fear. The feeling of fear is the same in you as it is in me as it is in her, right? right? Like the psychology and physiology of fear is not unique. Correct. And so that's how we can build empathy with each other is really being able to be connected with like, I felt terror in my life. I felt fear in my life. I felt shame. I felt rage, right? Like, I mean, that, you know, you shared, I think, you know, just kind of that place of wanting to murder your, your stepdad. Yeah. Uh, right? he, like that. He, he was 24 hours away from being dead. I went to the house the next day and I expected when I opened the door, that there would be a gun facing me. I was all ready for it. Yeah. And I had brought what I was going to use to kill him the night before, which was my favorite baseball bat. You know, I was, he was going to be bludgeoned to death. But I decided not to bring it in the house at the last minute because I said, okay, let me not provoke this any further than it already is. So I just set it next to the front door, against the door jam. And, uh, but Ed, I expected to walk into the house with a gun pointed at my face. And when I walked in, you were ex- uh, so you were expecting him to have a gun pointed at you. He knew yes. you were coming for him. Yes. Yeah. And luckily he wasn't. And, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to show, to, to share the story, but that language is, is so critical because men and uh, women and sisters and brothers, we can become allies. And I think we need to find a, a, a space where we are allies in this fight, uh, not only in just child sexual abuse, but just uh, sexual abuse in general. Right. Yes, because it, it extends far beyond just what happens in the family. And yet, sadly, I don't know the statistics fully off the top of my head, but my sense is that sexual abuse happens more frequently within families than it does outside of family. Yes, uh, statistically speaking, it's yeah, not the mythical stranger down by the river as it much is as not. it's not the stranger. You've seen similar types of statistics that say, yes, yes, uh, six in one girls will be molested before the age of eighteen. No, excuse me, four in one girls will be molested before the age of eighteen. One in six boys will be molested before the eighteen, and just statistically speaking, somewhere around seventy percent of the people who molest us are people that we know, family, church, teachers, uh, yeah. just, uh, uh, aunts, uncles. It's people that we know. And that is a sad commentary on where we are at as a society, as a people. When the people charged with protecting us, you know, there, there there's a chapter in yeah. my book called The Parent-Child Contract. And the parent-child contract I describe as when you first see your child and you lock eyes, you are immediately making a contract of love that cannot be broken. It is such a moment to look into the eyes of your child. It could be child number one. It could be child number 10. It makes no difference. It's just pure love. And the understanding is we are one. And as a parent, You say to yourself, I will protect you till the day I die. I will let no harm come to you. But when that contract is broken, when it's your parents 
who are committing the harm, committing the crime. The child contract is broken. And where do you as a child go from there? There's very few places you can go. You're in such a vulnerable, innocent place as a developing child. You don't have the resources psychologically, physically, financially to to navigate life. I mean, this is why children like it, are, have such a long, dependent period of time, unlike other animals in the animal kingdom. I mean, we, we're counting on adults for so many of our needs for so many years. Mm-hmm. And that contract... I love the the framing of the contract gets. Uh, what I'm listening to the word the, the contract gets violated, mm-hmm. and I just almost imagine this literal piece of paper just shredded mm-hmm. on the floor, right? And how do I recover from a shredded right. document? Um, and restore, and yet that's been the journey of your life. Yeah, it it, it, it has been the journey. Uh, our mother has broken that that contract over and over and over again. Uh, and at some point it becomes incumbent on you, the individual to take control of, of who you are and what you want to be about. And you, you have to be able to seek out those people, which was part of the big part of my journey was seeking out those individuals who I really could talk to. Didn't necessarily have to even be about what happened, but I needed to find those people that were what I call safe harbor. They were safe ports. I could go there and feel safe. I could go there and feel comfortable and not be concerned about someone looking at me because they know what happened or knew what I did or did not do as it related to helping my sisters and the timing of everything. Those are very critical steps in the recovery is finding that safe harbor, finding hope so that you can uh, rebuild yourself emotionally. You know, it's I'm feeling some tears coming up as you talk about that. And that language resonates deeply for me. And I almost had this vision keeper of kind of a new contract being written in the harbor not mm. one between you and the parent, but one between you and this person that creates the safe harbor where you really learn what it means to feel safe and connected mm. and cared for and, and not judged for who you've been. And, and, and my, my whole kind of professional journey has been into the academic study of, of relationships and attachment theory. And I'm not sure if that's something that you've looked through a lot, that literature, but in the attachment theory, they talk a lot about the safe base and, and the secure harbor as parts of that bonded relationship that's imperative for uh, maintaining and sustaining a relationship, being able to to repair and protect. So I think, you know, it's no, no coincidence, right, that the scientific literature, literature would use the same type of language, metaphorical, that you're using now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we know as, at a very human level, we need a place, a safe harbor to pull into. Whether we're a child or an adult, even, you know, we, there's times when we need respite and care and, and safety. Yeah. 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 We, we have to have those places. And sometimes those places might be uh, an individual not connected to your home. You know, you might be able to find a, if your child, a teacher that you could really talk to, you might be able to find someone uh, who is, part of your religious affiliation that you can talk to. 
But the challenge with that is we are so guarded going in. And so those yeah. things take oh, yeah. time. Uh, I remember when we first found out what had happened in 1977, right before we get ready to sign this contract with Motown, that of the 10 people in the room, and this is a challenge for brothers, of the 10 people in the room, my mother, my stepdad, and my four sisters knew what was going on. We four boys had no idea. And so once we heard the news, we were expected to react, to attack, to do something, to strike. And yet the other six had time to process. Unfortunately for my sisters, they have been processing this for years. But we boys did right. not have time to comprehend what happened. And yet we were expected to just do something. And when you're already knocked emotionally off balance, you are searching for ways to make what you just heard make sense. But none of it's making sense. And as, as you said, you're looking for words. Uh, you know, you were talking about language a few minutes ago, finding those words that help you just settle down and there are no words and the people who should be protecting you are the ones doing the damage. So it is really, really hard. And I understand, uh, for instance, why my sister would say we boys can't talk about it, but that was just her protecting herself and protecting my three younger sisters. And then as brothers, we are left, there is no harbor. There's no one we can go to. And because we were, pretty famous at the time, there was so much on the line. And that just, that whole singing career just added more sauce to the mix that we didn't need. Uh, Because I can just imagine us being famous and then one day I'm looking up and I'm seeing uh, this week on VH1's Behind the Music. (laughs) It's my family story. Oh, Oh, my God. Uh, you know, I can only, this is where I truly can only imagine, but that how fame complicates the family trauma story mm. and what can be shared or not shared. It, it sounds like that's kind of what you're pointing to is like when you're in the public eye and you're a performer or, or some other notorious position, uh, what we do as a culture and a media to families when, when dark family secrets come out is just horrendous. Well, that's just one thing for right, there a small is, there is subsection. little empathy or compassion. Yeah, but that's just for a small subsection of, of people. The majority of people don't have that as an additional uh, stress point for them. So, um, you know, sure. it's not to minimize anything that anyone else has gone through uh, by, by, by saying that. It's just to, to point yeah. out that that was just an additional thing we had to deal with. Uh, my journey took me to, you know, I would hear whispers from my sisters saying, how come you didn't do anything? How come, uh, you know, uh, you boys don't care? But of course we cared. It's just that there was not much to do. So I continued to try to find out where my stepfather was because I knew there was going to need to be some form of closure. Uh, not only for me, uh, but more importantly for my sisters. So in 2019, I found him on Facebook of all places. 
And sure. I said, okay, let me keep tabs because to my way of thinking, why would a person who knows he's done so much harm decide to create a Facebook profile? But that's just the arrogance of the predator. I can get away with anything and nothing's going to happen to me. They're not going to do anything at this point. And what he did in December of 2019 was he posted that his then wife had passed away in early December. But in January of 2020, they were going to have a going away party or a going home party. Uh, certainly very familiar with people in sure. Baptist church. You're going home. You're going to to heaven, you know. Yeah. And once I saw yeah. that, yeah. sure, I thought to myself, oh, okay. He just invited me to come by. <laughs> so it turns <laughs> out the church was 10 minutes from me in Van Nuys. And I had no idea he was that close. So I called my older brother and I said, he's going to be at a church at Van Nuys in three weeks. Are you coming? We need to handle this. He needs to see us. And my older brother decided to come with me. Uh, so the day before I printed eight, eight by 10 pictures of the eight of us kids when we were at the age when he started molesting my sisters. Five years old was a twin, six years old was a second, 11 year old uh, was the next girl, but we did have a brother or two in between them. And so I took all these pictures and I wrote at the top, the life, the lies of blah, 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 blah. And at the bottom, sure, I wrote, this is what he did to this individual brother or sister. So when we got to the church, my older brother and I were walking through the parking lot. We go into uh, the foyer and there's a line of people. And we're about 20 feet behind the door. And I look at my brother and I say, look, look who's at the door. And there stood our ex-stepfather. He's in all black. He's in a pork pie hat. He's very sharp, but he's got a walker. And I told my brother and I told my sisters the night before who I who I had, uh, notified that I'm going to go there. And my sisters were very religious and they and I'm expecting them to tell me, no, you can't go. You can't right. go to a church and do right. this. I said, well, I can wait to the parking lot after the service is all done. But I, I'm going to do something a little different. So instead of them saying, don't go, they all said, go. Wow. I was shocked uh -huh. that they all said, you have got to handle this for us. Okay. So he's got the walker. Ed, he starts walking into the sanctuary. And I look at my older brother. I said, that's all for show. I said, we know what's about to happen. At some point, he's going to get in that sanctuary and the spirit of God is going to hit him. He's going to walk away from the walker. So we all start filing in. He's 20 feet ahead of us. A crowd of people surround him and he's just smiling and beaming in right on cue. He walks away from the walker and walks 50 feet to the front of the church and sits down. And I looked at my brother. I told you that's he was all that's what he was always about. So we let him have his moment. I go and my older brother, we sit down at the back of the church. It's full of black people. This is a predominantly white church. And the pastor is this okay. really large white guy and he is beaming. He is just, 
He's never had so many black people in his church in his life. He is so incredibly happy. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> oh, man. It was great. Oh, and he's in all white. He's got, you know, all the trimmings and everything. And he's uh, all the black people yeah, are milling yeah. around and they're talking to old family and friends and all this. And it's wonderful. And me and my older brother, we're just sitting back there and I've got my folder of my pictures. And the pastor is just looking at people and he walks up to one guy and he says, <laughs> Isn't this a beautiful day? Isn't this just a fantastic day? Look at all these smiling faces. And I look up at him and say, yes, it is a beautiful day. Of all the people in the room that he could stop and talk to, and he only spoke to one, he stops and talks to me. So I figure, okay, this is the spirit of his dead wife saying, you need to protect my family. Hey. Okay, I can go there. <laughs> I, I can do that. Uh, so the service goes uh, uh, on for about two hours. And me and my brother, we, we, don't, we don't make a sound. We don't interrupt anything. We let yeah, the family have sure. their moment. And that's being respectful. Sure. But once the service was over, we get in line. And I've got my pictures and we are slowly getting closer and closer to my stepfather. This whole thing, it takes place for 90 minutes by the time I'm done. I get, yeah. he's sitting in a chair, a metal chair, and I'm thinking, oh, this is great. In 1986, it was me looking up the side of a mountain telling him you've got 24 hours to leave. Now, when I'm standing in front of him, he's going to be the one seated. And he's going to be looking up at me. I get uh, and I stand in front of him. And I say his name and he looks up and he starts to say my name and he goes. Oh! And he stops and the fear that just drained through him, all the color was gone. And I lean down and I use a, a few choice uh, swear words and whisper in his Choice ear words. and say, your day of reckoning has <laughs> arrived. It is over for you. You do not get to ride into the sunset. It is over for you, blah, 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 blah. He tries to get up and I move step, I move a step closer and lock him in. You're not going anywhere. His son is there. He had a son. At the same time, he was dating, rather he was married to my mom, where we lived on in our house in nineteen uh, in nineteen seventy one. So his son is there. He's older. I know who he is, yeah. and his brother is there. And his older brother saw me and my brother coming in. And when he saw us, when recognition dawned across him across his face that me and my brother was there, it was like, oh, what are they doing here? Well, you have to know oh, what we're doing yeah. there. So I get in front of him and I open up the folder Ed, and I take out one picture. This is her. You did this to her. Drop the picture at her feet. Pull out another one. You did this to her. You did this to her. You did this to him. And I'm getting louder and louder and louder. And the church, the milling around of people talking gets quieter and quieter until it just stops. And I say, you did this to him. You did this to him. And boom, 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 boom. Because he was going to... After the service, go have lunch, talk about all the great things, yeah. 
But all that got squashed. And oddly enough, when we're talking about therapists, there was a woman off to the side who saw me and my older brother doing this. When I finished with my stepdad, I left the pictures there. And I walked a couple of feet and decided, you know what? I'm going to go grab those pictures. I, I don't want him to have those. The therapist had picked up the picture and I overheard her telling a guy, put these away. We don't want anyone hearing this. And it struck me that you are a therapist and your first order was of business was to hide the evidence of a man sitting here who has molested children. No doubt other little girls in this room. And that was your first order of business was to say, hide this. Can't be. We have to be willing to step in and take control of the situation, no matter how difficult it may be. So it was really interesting for, for, for 90 minutes that I was able to do what I did, did not put hands on anybody. But by the time me and my older brother were done, everyone in the church agreed that we were absolutely correct in what we did because we walked at one woman and said, you know, a gentleman, gentlemen, this is not the time and the place for this. And other people said, no, 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 no. There is no right time and place for this conversation. You guys keep going. And, you know, you know, as well as I do, there is no right time. And if you're trying to pick the right time, you will never say what you need to say. So I called my sisters and told them what happened and they were in tears. They were just crying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us a degree of closure. And for me as a brother, it was the opportunity to recapture who I am as a brother and who I am as a man. I, I so desperately needed that because I also knew my son and my daughter knew and I needed to let them know their dad was going to handle this no matter how difficult it is. And my my son eventually said, you know what, Dad, I hope that if something like that ever happens, that I have your uh, strength to do what needs to be done. So we never know who's watching, but there's always someone watching what we do and don't do. Even in these situations, when we think we're hiding and that we are protecting ourselves, we're being an example for someone. There's someone who knows. Uh, I mean, this is so powerful and thank you for your willingness to share this, this very powerful story. And I think it really speaks to exactly what you're saying is we can't hide this kind of stuff. It needs to be out in the open and addressed and we can't hide from it. That's part of why I wanted to have you on the show is I just had this sense that you're going to go there and you're going to say what needs to be said in a way that, you know, look good. I don't, I don't even know how to open this can of worms, so I'll just open it and let it be what it is. But good church folk cover over a lot yeah. of sins and a lot of sexual sin yeah. and a lot of sexual abuse in the church. And it is endemic, and it's not just the Catholic Church. It's, it's every everywhere. religious it's tradition. Every religion. There is no safe yes. harbor. Yes. And it's every religion. So we're not pointing to any one religion. We're not even just pointing to Christianity. Correct. Uh, that that's the religious heritage, my religious heritage. It sounds like it may be yours, um, but it's been a very painful part of my own journey is reconciling how 
people who profess a religion of love and care and respect and redemption um, commit such heinous crimes against uh, children. And so the just the power of, of doing this act within the church to me is just symbolic on so many levels because it's a calling out of the wolf in the sheep's clothing. Yeah. You know, as, as our thing ended at the church, when me and my brother were driving away, and I'll just finish up with how, why it is so important that we yeah. talk about what happened. As we were driving away, yeah. the window was rolled down and I hear this, hey, off in the background. And me and my brother, we stopped the car and I said, did you hear something? And he says, yeah. So I turn around and look. There's this young woman, about 20 years old, very tall, very sleek in this gold dress that's just hugging her from neck to feet, all the way down. She's running across the grass and the grass is wet and her feet are just, they're just sinking into the grass. And she hits the yeah, asphalt yeah, yeah. And, and she's coming across. I need to talk to you. And as I look up, she has against her chest the eight pictures that I left behind on a table. And I said to my brother, she's got the pictures. And he says, no, you're kidding. I said, no, she's clutching the pictures. And she gets to the window and she says, I heard what you said in there. The woman who passed away was my grandmother. I need to talk to you. And immediately, you know what she wants to talk about. Yeah. Someone in that family, some little girl has been molested by my stepfather. This is a different family altogether. And she comes running out saying, right. I need to talk to you. Can I call you? Uh, never heard from her. And I think she was uh, shut down by members of her family. But sure. they now know, as you're talking about the wolf in sheep's clothing, that's lurking amongst their family. And it then becomes the question, what do you do about it? Because if you remain silent after knowing, you've got this spider in the center of this massive web feeding on the emotions of all of us, our fears, our I can't talk about it. He might do this to me. He might do this to my mother. He might do this to my sister. He might do this to my brother. So we all remain silent. I did it. I know it is it just eats at you. And everyone who knows and says nothing, the predator's web just grows and grows and grows. And he's got this protective detail that has layer upon layer upon layer of people willing to not talk, who ultimately are willing to protect that person. And we say, well, I don't want to get involved with that family. But the problem is this. Last night, some little girl went to school. She played kickball. She played four square. She got A's on her on her math test. She went home. She played outside. She had dinner with her family. But at one o'clock in the morning, someone opened the door. Tonight, that same scenario is going to play is going to play out. Tomorrow, some little boy, that same scenario is going to play out. And there are going to be people who know who say and do nothing. But now we change forever the trajectory of the lives of little boys and girls. Keeper, thank you so much for honoring me with your time and your story. And I, I just look forward to so many more great things to come from your work. 
I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.